Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Net zero. It's a phrase repeated like a mantra in Canada's climate change community. We tabled our net zero legislation to make it law. We will establish the building blocks to achieve net zero by 2050. It's going to be a zero net emission. Net zero is bringing into balance your greenhouse gas emissions with any sinks that you make. To meet Canada's goal for net zero emission. And to get to this deeper transformation towards net zero by 2050, we don't want to just hope, but we need all levels of government to be on board. Okay, let me chime in. Net zero is Canada's emissions target for 2050. It means for every one ton of CO2 we put into the atmosphere, one ton of CO2 must be taken out. That is the goal. How the country gets there is another matter. The Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act charts a path for clean growth by delivering on our commitment to legislate net zero emissions by 2050. Bill C-12 will establish an independent net zero advisory body, a group of up to 15 experts from across the country with a range of experience and expertise. Climate change minister Jonathan Wilkinson last fall with a key part of the plan. But there are also warning words from a Canadian who's part of a similar panel in the United Kingdom. She worries Canada's version will fall short. Today we'll hear from her and from members of the new panel in Canada on the path ahead and the pressure they face. Canada may be embarking on a new path with its Net Zero Advisory Committee, but it's a path that was originally forged by the United Kingdom. It created the Committee on Climate Change a dozen years ago. It's considered by many to have set the standard for other countries to follow if they're serious about reaching their targets for cutting emissions. And it turns out there's a Canadian on that committee. Uh, my name is uh, Corinne Lequerry. I'm a professor of climate change science at the University of East Anglia, and I'm a member of the UK Climate Change Committee. You recently released a report card of sorts stating that global emissions cuts need to increase tenfold to meet the goals of the Paris Accord. I'm wondering how Canada is doing in its efforts to meet those targets. Uh, I'm afraid Canada's not doing well at all. Uh, Canada's really struggled to meet any of its climate targets so far. And in our report, we show that Canada is one of the few wealthy countries where emissions continue to rise. So there's big issues in tackling climate change in Canada. Were you surprised when you realized that those were the numbers for Canada? Uh, yes, a little surprise. I was also uh, disappointed and discouraged somewhere. If Canada cannot do it, then uh, how is this going to work? Uh, but uh, when you look at the policy and the governance, especially in Canada, you kind of realize that there are real issues with the way that this is organized. And I think there's a lot that Canada could do. Such as? Uh, well, uh, for example, uh, establishing uh, an independent experts advisory committee to help set 
uh, near-term targets to evaluate progress, to advise uh, Canadian policymakers on actions that could work, to engage very broadly, um, essentially to apply advice to the policies in Canada. All right. Well, well, let's let's talk about the committee because that is the main focus of, of what we're discussing this week. Um, you sit on a UK committee. You know what the Canadian committee model is going to be. But let me start with something more basic. Why should a committee like this even matter to Canadians based on your experience? Because uh, it's difficult to tackle climate change. Uh, policymakers have all kinds of priorities and the goals for climate targets are usually far and remote and they don't mean very much in terms of how do you reach that goal like net zero in 2050 seems like a really long time away and and the evidence that you need to have to say well what do you need to do this year next year this decade to set in motions the the very extensive changes that need to happen, and you need very specific advice to do that. Okay, given all of that then, what do you think of the model the Canadian government has adopted for its committee? I think it goes in the right direction, but the way that it's written now is not strong enough. In order to work, these committees really need to be independent. They really need to be at a distance from government, and at the moment, it's too much close to government. It sits under the ministers. The commissioner for the environment also has a lot of baggage around it. And in order for these committees to have a real voice in society, to have clear advice, they need to be far enough from government to really not be enmeshed in the day-to-day -day decisions, but close enough to actually understand what can work in the Canadian policy process. And also in the law, it's kind of too slow. There's a lot of good mechanisms, but the urgency of the action is just not there. The first interim target is 2030. The commissioner for the environment uh, has to give an advice or, or, or a report every five years. And you don't see like this dynamic that needs to happen year on year so that we really establish this very quick progress that we need to make. Well, what do you say, though, to those who, who might believe, and I think that there are some on the committee who, who believe this, that, that we've got 30 years? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. 30 years is the end point. We're already way behind. I mean, Canada's emissions are still increasing now. And the target for 2030 is to cut them by 30%. I mean, how do you do that if you don't realize that this year you need to really set in motion your changes the changes that need to occur to tackle climate change, they sort of touch all of our activities. I mean, take transport, for example. If we want to electrify the whole of transport, well, we have to start by producing cars differently. We have to produce electric cars. We have to uh, set in motion things so that when you buy your next car, you actually can afford it, that you're offered models that you want to buy, that you can recharge your vehicle when you need to. And if you want to do this efficiently, then you have to know what needs to happen when, who does what. And that's why your independent advisory group has to have 
the proper expertise, the proper resources to give this advice in detail at the moment when it's most useful. Now, you talked about the importance of being independent. I I know in the UK, it is a body that is independent. It's separately funded. It has its own budget, its own staff, and it is a a committee of scientists. Why are those things important? Uh, Because the committee itself in the UK has scientists, but it has actually experts that cover a wide range uh, from finance to agriculture to engineering. So it's a very broad interdisciplinary body. You have to have your own resources because you need to be able to make advice that works. Works for government, works for governments now. And in order to do this, you really need to analyze what is the evidence from the IPCC, which is this international uh, report that is published every seven years, bring that advice down to Canada, say, well, what's the situation in Canada? Where is my industries? Where are the people who can act? What is the position of citizens? Do citizens, are they prepared to accept change in different sectors? And you need to analyze all this and advise on the right policies for implementing these change. So all of this means that you need to have a group of people who can actually think about these issues in the long term, beyond governments, beyond governments, ministers. I mean, governments, you know, they rotate through times, ministers even faster. So you really need to have those teams that can have a long-term view, and how do you make that happen in practice? Well, how influential then is the committee that you're on? Uh, Because just recently, the government announced it's going ahead with a huge coal mine in the UK, despite your committee's concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the committee so far has been extremely influential. I mean, the emissions in the UK have been cut by almost half since 1990, and they're decreasing by 3% per year now. And in the case of that coal mine there, uh, in fact, the committee has responded, has reacted to say, look, uh, this decision is actually conflicting with your climate change obligation. And did you have a careful look about uh, what the implications are going to be for the rest of your strategy? And as a result, uh, the government is looking into this again. Now, so given everything that you've outlined um, about the UK and your concerns about what Canada's legislation says now, I'm wondering if you think the Canadian government is serious about being accountable when it comes to climate change. I think this law is a big step forward and this advisory committee is a big step forward. But I think that the way that it is written now, I very much doubt that it's going to work, that it's going to really make and steer Canadian politics in the direction that that the government wants to go, in fact. We know what these committees look like and what makes them work. And I would like to encourage the government and the parliament to look at this law again and to see how you can strengthen uh, this independence of this committee, give it resources, make sure that it's there for its expertise and inject a sense of urgency in it. Unless you do that, then we could wait another 10 years and Canada's track record is not very good. Do you think Canada will meet its targets? Um, The targets for Canada are extremely challenging. Canada has not met its targets in the past. So I think that what is on the table now 
is not enough to meet the targets in the future. So it all hinges on the decisions that will be taken, especially through this law. Now you you are already obviously an accomplished climate scientist. I'm wondering if you can tell me why did you want to be on the committee in the UK? Because um, as a climate scientist, as I've worked and I've published reports with the IPCC, and we have so much evidence on climate change now, and everybody wants to act. I mean, I don't doubt the goodwill of politicians. I think a lot of policymakers really want to make things happen. The big questions we have now is how? How do we make this happen? our response to climate change in a way that is good for society, that helps us create jobs, help the young people improve health and all this. And all these questions, they are scientific questions. You can answer them with the scientific process of analyzing the evidence, of helping clarify what the options are, helping deliver to government what is the difference between a constraints and a choice, which is what governments decide what is the best course of action for my country. And I really wanted to use the scientific method that I know so well in service of government decisions. I thank you so much for your time and your insights uh, from across the pond in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Thank you very much. We know the news can be relentless and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as promised, we're joined by three of the 14 people on Canada's newly announced Net Zero panel. Simon Donner is a climate scientist at the University of British Columbia. Catherine Abreu is executive director of the Climate Action Network. Dan Wicklam is one of the co-chairs of the panel. He's the president and CEO of the Transition Accelerator. It's a Canadian charity that works with groups across the country to help with the transition to net zero. And they have all been good enough to join us now. Hello. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for the invite. Thanks, Laura. Catherine, you heard Corinne Lecaré's um, concerns about the net zero advisory body legislation as it exists now, not about you personally, of course, but about the legislation. What are your concerns about the way the body's being set up? Well, we've seen a Canadian approach to accountability with Bill C-12 and the launch of the net zero advisory body. Um, so it does look different than it looks in the UK. It looks different than it looks in other jurisdictions like New Zealand. And we've yet to see how it will come together to get us where we need to go in terms of climate ambition and accountability in Canada. But I know that all the members of the advisory body are really committed, not just to getting Canada to net zero by 2050, but to locking in that near-term action that we just heard is so essential to that pathway of emissions reductions. And I think we heard the emphasis on the independence of the body and how necessary that is to providing that expert advice to Canadian governments. And I'm really proud to say that this body is a very independent body. We also heard the emphasis on technical expertise um, and scientific 
scientific insight. And while the makeup of the, of the net zero advisory body is a bit different than um, similar bodies we see in other parts of the world, we know we also have other organizations in Canada that contain that technical and scientific expertise, and we have the ability to consult with them. What about the question of, uh, that she mentioned about the first target of her review being 2030 instead of 2025? Yeah, so if I take my net zero advisory body hat off and I put my Climate Action Network Canada hat on, um, that near-term ambition is absolutely essential. So, you know, she's right. We've missed every climate target we've ever set in this country. We're already so far behind and we know we have a long way to go and we need to be driving emissions down today, tomorrow, this year, next year and every year between now and 2050. We didn't get that 2025 milestone in Bill C-12, but that doesn't mean we can't make some amendments to the bill that will make sure that near-term ambition um, is articulated well in the Canadian legislation once it goes through um, the House and the Senate. Now, I'm in, I am mindful of the fact, and, and make, I want to make sure listeners understand that, that the, the legislation that has created this body still has not passed through Parliament or the Senate, so there still is an opportunity to change and amend it, but your work is already underway. Dan, you're the co-chair. There's nothing in the proposed legislation that ensures the government actually acts on any of the advice you submit. I'm wondering what recourse you think you have if the government simply ignores you. Well, I think we would have the same recourse as every Canadian, that is, we can vote. I mean, in a country like Canada with a strong democracy, I don't think we want unelected officials you know, making policy or regulation or legislation. But I think what we do want is to put in place strong, independent, transparent structures that are well-resourced to give the best advice possible to, to the government so that they can make decisions. So, and, and we feel we've got that body in place. And when you hear that, that again, I'm going to use the UK example, that, that their structure is that the body reports out and, and if the government doesn't answer to the concerns that they raise, the government is forced to account for that. There's nothing in the legislation that forces the government or the minister to account for that. I'm wondering if that concerns you. Well, you know, again, in the Canadian context, I don't think it really does. I mean, our terms of reference are quite clear. You know, we have three objectives. We are supposed to give advice on the most likely pathways to net zero by 2050. We are supposed to advise on the near-term actions and key building blocks that support this net zero objective by 2050. And we're also supposed to um, serve as an integrating function to integrate the recommendations stemming from the multiplicity of net zero initiatives, both internal and external to government. But a key thing is that all of our recommendations are to be transparent and public. So, you know, this is not, you know, a, a behind closed doors relationship between uh, an institution like the body and the minister. Everything that we do will be public. So Canadians can judge our advice and the Canadians can judge whether or not the government acts on our advice. And I would say you know, a final theme that runs through all of our terms of reference is the concept of engagement. The minister wants us out, you know, engaging Canadians in a two way a dialogue to understand, be able to develop the best advice and understand the implications for that advice. Simon, you're the only climate scientist on the panel. I'm wondering how you're going to ensure the panel is making its decisions or, or formulating its advice based on climate science. I think one of the things to know is that though I'm the only working climate scientist on the panel, I'm not the only person trained as a scientist on the panel. Dan is, and Dan is a scientist as well. And that everybody on the panel is an expert on some aspect of this issue. And so my job, as I see it, is try to represent the latest science and the, you know, where the consensus of the sort of scientific community, the community of Canadian scientists is on this subject. I'm not terribly worried about 
the panel following science because I mean that's why they're all appointed that's why they're all here but are you at all concerned about having the science outweighed or overwhelmed by industrial or economic arguments or other concerns? Um, you know, absolutely. I'd always think about that. But we have to think about why Canada has struggled to reach its targets for so long. Um, you know, science alone can't tell people what to do, right? I mean, science is one of the pieces of information you use in trying to make decisions. And I think if you had a panel of 12 scientists it wouldn't be very effective because that panel doesn't have any expertise on how you actually make change in the world. Although I, I just let me jump in. on in the climate system. Just let me jump in though and, and note that um, I, I'm going to compare it to the UK again because it's been held out as a standard that they have had a significant cut in emissions in the years since the panel has been in place. Will we achieve that same emissions level with a with a body that does not have a huge number of climate scientists on it? Um, I certainly hope so. And I don't know that you can say for sure that that's why those emissions were accomplished in the UK was because of the presence of scientists on the committee. You know, our two countries are different. What works as a policy in one country is not necessarily going to work in the other. We still have a um, large fossil fuel sector of our economy. The UK doesn't. Well, and the so UK has North Sea really, oil and gas. Right. But there are very different challenges to deal with in each case. And uh, the UK had already had some success before its panel began. It's been such a struggle in Canada that I feel like if you had a panel that was dominated by scientists and not enough representation of people from labor, from, you know, from economics, et cetera, that could understand how like changes could actually get made in Canada, we might not be successful. So I'm actually quite happy with the composition of the committee. If, if people wanted to challenge why I'm the scientist on it, I would certainly understand <laughs> that. Uh, but I don't think we need, I don't think we actually need that many more scientists. Dan, I see you want to say something. Why don't you jump in? Well, I think it's important to note that we actually have a constellation of people and organizations in the country that are working on creating pathways to a net zero society. So we have you know, deep capacity in academia, we have deep capacity in industry and NGOs. And, and the federal government has funded an independent institute called the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices that is essentially a, you know, an economics and, and scientific modeling uh, organization uh, that gives advice also about, around how to get to net zero. So we feel very strongly in the early days of our work that real robust pathways that are going to get us to net zero have to incorporate elements of all of these disciplines. Uh, and we're that that integrating function that is is purposely set up to be able to do that. Catherine, did you want to weigh in there? I think part of how we're imagining the net zero advisory body will operate is by consulting with this really rich body of technical scientific expertise that Dan was referencing. If you do look at the UK Committee on Climate Change, while it is predominantly populated by scientists, and I, not, I don't think that's a bad idea for the record. I think <laughs> having a scientific body is a great idea. Um, but they do also have an advisory body built into the UK Committee on Climate Change that looks a lot more like the net zero advisory body that Canada just announced. So we're kind of in this situation, as I said earlier, we're doing it the Canadian way. So we've got kind of two pieces of the puzzle that aren't living in the same organism as the, the same way that they are in the UK, but they do exist and we are going to be able to find ways to work together. Catherine, I just want to stay with you for a second in, in this idea of the Canadian way. <laughs> this week, the Supreme Court ended a years-long fight on, with its decision on carbon pricing. Um, we know that the fight fell along partisan lines and geographical lines. I'm wondering what you think it will take for climate change policy to be separate from politics in this country. 
That is an excellent question. And I actually think that this week's historic ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada will help take us a long way in that regard, because the highest court in this country has now said climate change is a matter of national concern. And we expect that all orders of government in this country are going to be able to work together to explore the issue of climate change and address it. So I think that's a helpful one. But if we think through some of the other barriers and reasons for that kind of partisan politicking over climate change that we've seen in Canada, you know, a big part of it has to do with this face off that we see between the federal and provincial governments. So this kind of, I'm not going to do the thing that you tell me I'm supposed to do. Um, And we also see that that partisan element of it where, um, unfortunately, you know, some parties in Canada have really aligned themselves against certain climate policies while not perhaps speaking up for the policies that they do think are going to work. Um, But we're now in a place where we know that this cooperative federalism is going to be absolutely essential to getting Canada on track. And um, I think we have seen a really clear message being sent by Canadians, particularly in the last federal election, where 62% of voters cast their ballots for parties that we're pushing for more ambitious climate action, um, the Canadian voters aren't going to let parties of any stripe get away with ignoring this issue anymore. I want to ask all three of you, you, you've taken on a big task here. And I would think that people who are interested in this subject are really paying close attention. And it's a big job. You've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. I'm wondering what you can say to Canadians about the work that you're going to do that will tell them you're really going to make a difference in this country. And and Simon, why don't I start with you on that one? You know, climate change is really the challenge of the century. And it's the challenge of the century because we're talking about finding ways to remake how we get our energy, how we move ourselves around, how we heat and cool our homes. Most of the actions have benefits to them, right? Have net benefits to them. And so there's so many good reasons to take climate actions that do things other than just reduce climate change that are good, reducing air pollution, improving quality of life and all these other things. So this really is this great opportunity to sort of transform Canada, but it's not going to be easy. And we want to make sure it's done in a fair and just way. And so I'm just hoping that by bringing this group of people together that have been thinking about this issue for a long time, hopefully we can give the government some good advice on how to get there. Catherine, are you feeling the pressure? Definitely feeling the pressure, but I'm here for the work and all of us are. Um, We're not just here to talk about driving down emissions, right? We're here to talk about building healthier, safer communities that are investing in the sectors of our economy that are going to build a livable planet, but also bring prosperity and job creation well into our future. But I'll say one of the things that I'm really excited about uh, with the Net Zero Advisory Body is the immediate context of COVID-19. So Dan walked us through uh, the key pillars of, of our deliverables over the next number of decades, but we're also mandated to give advice to the federal government on how we can be using the recovery period from COVID-19. COVID-19 to put us on track to dramatic emissions reductions, but also to building um, healthier, more prosperous communities. And we have really seen throughout this health crisis, the ways in which uh, not just climate change, but economic crises, um, colonial structures of extractivism, uh, 
crises of racism and inequality, all of these crises are interconnected. And I am really hoping that we as the Net Zero Advisory Body are going to be able to help give Canadian governments advice on how we can move through this moment of disruption, address those interconnected crises at their root, and really build back better. Dan, last word to you. Do I feel the pressure? I, I think we all do on the body. The challenge of getting to net zero is not a challenge just borne by government and just borne by this advisory body. It's actually borne by all Canadians. And the approach that we want to take is to give advice to the government, but also that advice be relevant to every Canadian as they go about their day, that they're living their life. What's their purchasing patterns? You know, what decisions did they make? And especially the leaders of today's companies and today's governments and, and NGOs, the decisions that leaders make matter now. So the way we are going to define pathways is not just about a group of scientists behind closed doors creating economic models. It's about how can we mobilize and motivate people to think and act differently in ways that add up to these steps that will drive us uh, to net zero. So we think this reframing from just a negative emissions reductions framing that's happened over the last decades, it's always been about taxes and clean fuel standards and pipelines. You know, we're talking about fundamental retooling of, of systems that give us energy, that move us around the landscape, that heat our buildings, that grow our food. These systems are going to go through more or less fundamental retooling in 30 years. So we, we have the opportunity not just to reduce emissions, but to solve multiple problems at the same time. And I think part of this transition is understanding how Canada is going to win, not just environmentally, but how are we going to win economically in this very quickly changing world? So it's a daunting task, but in a very real way, this is a task for all Canadians, not just government and certainly not just the survivors or body. Good place to end. I, I thank all three of you for, for sharing so much time and your insights with us as you get underway with this work. I'm hoping that we can check back with you in the future on how things are going. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks. There are a lot of different kinds of experts on the Net Zero Advisory Body, scientists, economists, Indigenous leaders, campaigners, and innovators. Young Wu falls into that last category. He's the CEO of the Mars Discovery District in Toronto. You know, when we think about Net Zero, I really believe that part of the solution for Canada is to find new solutions and new markets that will be good for the planet and good for the economy as well. And I think the innovation economy is certainly a big part of how we find that pathway. One of the clear answers to how do we get to net zero is to drive down emissions from our biggest emitting sectors. So there's no question we have to keep on doing that. Industrials and energy and buildings probably contribute the lion's share of the emissions right now. But what happens if we could actually introduce new technologies that are developing? For instance, if we want to really harness the renewable energy sources like wind power and solar power, everybody knows that uh, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. But in order to unlock the power of renewable sources of energy, we might need to really invest into commercial grade energy storage. Being able to supply cheap sources of renewable energy and a reliable basis to the grid, I think is part of the puzzle we have to crack to get to a net zero. We can see technologies like this that are already commercial and are already been deployed. The question is, can we accelerate their deployment into the marketplace? Can we deregulate or help regulate through smart regulation, their adoption, so that they can achieve a bigger impact over the next 30 years? I really believe this can be a material part of the overall solution. 
Young Wu is the CEO of the Mars Discovery District. He's also one of the 14 people appointed to Canada's new net zero advisory body. Now, last week we talked about how to make power grids more climate resilient, and we asked you for your memories of losing power. A lot of you wrote in to us. From Nina, we got this note: "The day of the blackout was one of my first days working in the wardrobe department of a television show out in Scarborough. I was on break and had just plugged in the kettle to make myself a cup of tea when the power went out, and I was plunged into darkness. So I obviously assumed it was my fault, since the iron and the steamer were also plugged in, and the building we were in was an older building." When I realized that the power to the entire building was out, I was sure I'd be fired for daring to make a cup of tea. And from Elizabeth, we got this: living in downtown Kingston, my honey was in med school. Marshall and Glenda Godwin opened their home. They came from Newfoundland to us and other medical students and families to live with them until the power was restored. It was like camping in the winter, but with so many people around, my son was always being held and entertained. And we managed to have a wonderful time, despite the stress of not having reliable power. We carried on. It was an amazing time that I haven't forgotten, and I hope Marshall and Glenda hear my heartfelt thanks for their kindness and generosity during that stressful time. Thank you for those emails, and this week we'd like to hear from you again. This time about hydrogen. Ottawa says it's part of a low-carbon economy, and we would love to hear from you, especially if you're working in hydrogen already. Email us your thoughts, Earth. At cbc.ca. That does it for us this week. And if you haven't given us a review, please do. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders and Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.